This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt. Your coach, your guide on the side. Three hours, folks, of ideas, tools, everything you need to have a healthier, happier life. Happy Friday to you. Oh, it's Friday. (laughs) It's Friday. It's Friday. My favorite song. Benny, will you be looking for that song? We need to use that song today. I know that's your favorite song of all time, and we'll be getting to uh, celebrate Friday. Hey, great show coming up for you today. Interesting uh, topics that you might not even know uh, need to be discussed. For example, did you know that about, I don't know, of the of 13 Western states, roughly, let's say, 85% of the land owned by the federal government is in 13 states? Did you know that? Citizens of America, did you know that uh, the federal government owns about 1% of New York, the state of New York, and about 85% of the state of Nevada? Did you all know that? Do you remember that crazy standoff with Clive? Was that his name? Clive Bundy? What was his name? That guy? Oh, that was crazy. You remember that? He, you know, he was trying to take his cattle and graze them on federal lands and you know, get some free food off the government. And it started a standoff that got crazy. Federal agents went in to, to stop that. You know, he. I think that all started in Nevada, which again is 85% of Nevada is owned by the federal government. So how come only 1% of New York is owned by the government and yet 85% of Nevada and 57 or something percent of Utah is owned by the federal government? About 1.8% of Texas is owned by the federal government. It all goes back to when we joined the union. So we're going to be talking about that in federal lands because some of the states in the West, they're, they're trying to get their land back. They're tired of this. Come on. So we'll be talking about that in the first hour today uh, and, and just, you know, starting a discussion about that. Then we got to go address the Confederate flag issue. Uh, we're going to go into a, a little uh, research project to find out more about the Confederate flag, just so you're better informed. So, you know, you can teach your kids about how a symbol can become a symbol of civil war or it could become a symbol of racism. We'll get into that uh, with uh, John Price. He'll be kind of walking us through that. Uh, he's a he's a professor, um, and he's going to just give us some insight. And also, finally, we're going to get into how you learn and how your brain works you know, wouldn't that be great to figure out? How is it that you actually learn things, know things? Good show today. Plus, of course, uh, we're going to get into a little bit of uh, a movie review and find out what's coming out. And, you know, guys, it's Friday. You got to get ready. Minions. It's coming. <laughs> I don't know when I said minions. I looked, I looked right at Ben. Sorry, Ben. No offense. there. I'm not trying to say you're a minion, but I did look right at you. What are you saying? I just think you're fantastic. Just, I just want you to know I love you. Okay, thanks. Okay. Um, got a great show, but before we can do anything, 
we're, we're missing a voice, and the voice is Kathy Akins, and she's here to bring us the news. Good morning, Matt. In less than an hour from now, the Confederate flag will be permanently removed from the South Carolina Capitol. Both the state Senate and House voted for its removal earlier this week, and Governor Nikki Haley signed it into law yesterday. So the action was taken by the General Assembly. I saw passions get high, I saw passions get low, but I saw commitment never-ending. And so what we saw was another action. And that action is that the Confederate flag is coming off the grounds of the South Carolina State House. The flag, which has flown to the Capitol for over 50 years, will be removed after a short ceremony this morning. It will eventually be housed in a museum. The decision to take the flag down comes less than a month after a white supremacist allegedly gunned down nine black people during Bible study at a Charleston church. The recent hack of government computers is much larger than originally thought. The Social Security numbers of nearly 21 million Americans are now in the hands of hackers. Stolen in the breach were home addresses, education and employment history as well as mental health, criminal, and financial records. Cybersecurity expert James Lewis talked about the breach. They'll have a, a long time to work on figuring out how to use it for recruitment, how to use it to maybe coerce people with relatives in China. Um, they'll find a million ways to use this, and none of them will be good for the U.S. Officials are calling Catherine Archuleta to resign, the head of Federal Office of Personnel Management, though Archuleta says she's staying. Government officials say there is no evidence of any stolen information that has yet been used for identity theft. The man who allegedly opened fire during a movie in an Aurora, Colorado theater back in 2012 will not testify in his own behalf at his trial. James Holmes is accused of killing 12 people and injuring 70 others during the midnight movie. His defense, which is trying to prove he was legally sane during the shooting, plans to rest their case today. Closing arguments in the death penalty trial are expected to begin on Tuesday. Black civil rights activists are seeking to have Bill Cosby's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame removed. The leaders say it would be the walk of shame if the star remains. This coming after a deposition from Cosby in 2005, which was released this week, revealing he obtained sedatives to give women he wanted to have sex with. The Hollywood Chamber of Commerce said it has no plans to remove the star since one has never been removed before. A teenager from Minnesota died yesterday after contracting an amoeba that attacked his brain. The 14-year-old contracted the disease on Tuesday after swimming in Lake Minnewaska. The disease is caused by an amoeba often found in fresh water that can enter the brain if inhaled through the nose. The boy's death would be the third verified from the amoeba in Minnesota in the last five years. The Michigan doctor who falsely told hundreds of people they had cancer will find out his fate this morning. Dr. Farid Fata has pleaded guilty to fraud for bilking the patients as well as insurance companies out of millions of dollars. He's also accused of giving unnecessary and painful cancer treatments to patients who didn't have the disease. Prosecutors are seeking a life sentence. And Matt Evelyn Jones will be celebrating her birthday tomorrow by throwing out the first pitch at the Seattle Mariners home game. Have you heard about this? No. Well, Jones will be celebrating her 108th birthday. (laughs) She's the oldest person ever known to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. And I guess she's such a huge fan of the Mariners. She watches every game at her retirement center while wearing their gear. How great. And this is the best part. She watches the games alone because she doesn't want to be distracted by the other people in the (laughs) care center. Leave me alone. I'm watching my Mariners. Isn't that cute? Now, I'm not sure how far away she'll be standing. Probably not real far. I'm guessing maybe 10 feet or something. When was the last time, Kathy, you threw a baseball? Uh... 
probably re- I mean yeah, I have a nephew that is a really good baseball player so he and I will throw the ball every once in a okay, while okay so I, I I throw a ball twice a year okay uh, I then recoup for about <laughs> six months because you've torn one of your two muscles and yeah. that can be very you painful. know what it is I think I'm just built wrong that could be it I think yeah. I've got big muscles and really small tendons <laughs> So I th- that's a problem. It's when a those huge tendons problem. Cannot, you know, but when you're 108 years old, how yeah. do you prepare to throw out the first pitch? I'm kind of thinking it might be more of an underhand toss, is what I'm guessing, you know, instead of an no. overhand throw. You think? You she's going to wind throw up. She's going to get her leg up over her head <laughs> to get let. You want that leverage? You want that whip effect? As long as there's not a balk, balk, you know that Wouldn't she's that, yeah, be okay. Exactly. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great if she did come out right to the mound? Because that's a <laughs> long throw. It's a long 60 feet. I mean, I how many presidents have humiliated themselves? Oh. And rock stars. Oh, for sure. Oh, so, so, and some of those are the worst. How great, though, that she is actually a fan, right? Oh, she loves it. I mean, it'd be cool to be 108 and go throw a ball, if you, even if you didn't care about the sport, but to love the sport? Yeah, and say, don't bug me. That's I'm watching it. it. That's I need cute. to know what's going on. Isn't that awesome? What are you going to be doing when you're 108? I'm hopefully will be in heaven by then. Yes. <laughs> uh, heaven? Live that long. I'm not sure that'll be the option. <laughs> Nice try, Kathy. Thanks so much. Good news. That's great. Good stuff. Man, 108, throwing out the opening pitch. That's like crazy to me. Gosh. Seriously. That right there, she I'm already tired for her. Hey, we got a great show. Um think about the West. If you're back in the East, today we're gonna just do a little lesson in why the West probably keeps their guns. Why you hear a lot of people that are holed up in their, you know, ranch house. Just there's a reason Uh, the West is kind of wild, right? And on top of it all, there's also a reason why the West may trust the federal government a lot less. And it simply might be because they're pretty much owned by the federal government. Roughly 50% of the West is owned by the federal government, which is crazy. So we'll be talking about that. Some of the states are actually trying to push to get their land back. And we'll be visiting with a law professor at the University of Utah who's an expert in natural resource law. And uh, he's going to walk us through what, what are the why did this all happen? How does the federal government own less than 1% of New York and 85% of Nevada? We'll find out and see if there's any likelihood of any of that shifting or changing. Stick with us, my friends. We're starting the journey right here on the Matt Townsend Show. said it, brother. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This land is your land, and in a way you may not even know. Did you know that when it comes to the West, uh, there's the federal government owns about 640 million acres, okay? And about, uh, that's roughly 28% of the, the acreage of the nation. The interesting thing, though, is the vast you know, ownership, the vast majority of that ownership is in the Western states. Roughly 47% of the Western states is owned by the, by the federal government. 
the land, that is, right? 47% of 11 Western states is owned by the federal government, when the remaining other states only have 4% of their state owned by the federal government. It's an interesting issue, right? But maybe not if you're in the other states, but if you're in those 11 Western states, you're wondering, hey, hey, how come we're owned by the federal government? So we wanted to bring in an expert uh, who could help us with this, and we we found, I think, just the perfect uh, the perfect expert. Uh, with us today is Robert Keiter, who's the director of the Wallace Stegner Center of Land, Resources, and Environment. He's a law professor at the University of Utah and an expert in natural resource law, and he's been uh, he's been deeply deeply involved in this issue as certain states, Utah included are starting now to try to fight to get some of their land back, to be able to take back their land from the federal government. Robert Keiter, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure to be with you. Enlighten us on this. How come, you know, how come it's there's such a disparity between the Western states and how much is owned by the federal government versus the rest of the country? The basic uh, reason why there's such a difference uh, is uh, uh, geographical. Uh, and uh, that's primarily because uh, so much of the West, uh, first of all, is uh, at a relatively high elevation uh, where agriculture is not uh, uh, that easily pursued mm. uh, as it was uh, further east, that is east of the 100th meridian, as most uh, historians would uh, assert. Uh, and then secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, <clears throat> the, S- the West is uh, quite arid in comparison yeah. to the eastern part of the uh, country. And uh, as a result, uh, there's just not that much water uh, out here, uh, certainly during the homesteading era, uh, for uh, folks to uh, uh, pursue uh, agriculture. And that makes sense because, like, you look at the state of Nevada, 85 percent, roughly, of Nevada is is federal land. And if you've ever driven through Nevada, it makes sense. It makes sense because nobody would want it except aren't there mineral rights the whole the whole shakedown of the whole weird Clive Bundy moment where he just wanted to go graze his animals on federal land or whatever i don't know there's it's it's a uh, it, there's nothing there except there's some stuff there well it, uh, you're correct in the sense that there are uh minerals uh under some of the uh lands here in the west uh some of the federal lands uh, and also some of the private lands. Uh, Probably the most important historical fact to be aware of uh, regarding the minerals is that uh, while the federal government was disposing uh, of its lands through homesteading laws uh, uh, beginning uh, back uh, actually in the early 1800s, principal homestead law came in during the Civil War, that uh, during that time the federal government did not uh, ordinarily uh, transfer uh, mineral rights, uh, where uh, minerals were known uh, to uh, either private individuals or to the new states uh, as they were uh, coming oh, aboard. In other yeah. words, the federal government tended to retain mineral rights. Is So talk to us about that, because a lot of states now, in fact, two Utah senators are now fighting to try to get the land, the the states to take over the federal lands. Um, uh, Congressman Bishop, Congressman Stewart, have put uh, are launching a federal land action group, and I guess the idea is we want our land back. But isn't it true that we signed? You know, when, when we became when we entered into the union, we there were certain statutes that we agreed to, which basically meant the federal government would keep a majority of that land. 
Uh, yes, uh, you're correct. And uh, let me step back uh, uh, before Utah went into the Union. Yeah. Uh, and that is that the, the lands uh, originally uh, uh, were acquired by the federal government uh, through uh, treaties with foreign uh, countries, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in the case of Utah. Uh, so the federal lands uh, were never these lands that are now and have been from the beginning uh, federal lands uh, were never actually uh, under state ownership. So the idea that the states are taking back something that uh. was theirs to begin with uh, is not an accurate characterization. Yeah. Uh, there were slightly different historical circumstances in the East, uh, but that's uh, that was an earlier era. Um, in terms of the uh, claims uh, that the state uh, uh, of Utah uh, has made recently to the federal lands, uh, they emerge from what's known as the Utah Statehood Act uh, or a State Enabling Act, uh, which was adopted by Congress uh, to admit Utah into the Union. Uh, it followed a pattern uh, that had already been established with the earlier admitted states, um, adopted in 1897, um, and uh, it's some provisions in that act uh, that uh, uh, the proponents of uh, uh, transferring these lands back to the state have uh, seized upon. Do do talk to me as a, as an expert in this. Does the why does the federal government want the land now? Why wouldn't I mean if if the rest of the country is doing pretty well with their own land? Why, why wouldn't the federal government want to just turn the land back over to the states that want it and can afford to take care of it? Why would the, why would the feds want to be involved in owning that land? Well, uh, yeah, ultimately, it's a political question uh, as to who owns the lands. Um, at the beginning, uh, the um, federal government did make the lands available for uh, disposal, uh, first of all, to states upon admission. Uh, and uh, Utah actually received uh, approximately 7.5 million acres uh, when it was admitted uh, to statehood. Uh, the bulk of these lands are now what we regard as the state school trust land. Right. Um, in addition to that, uh, the federal government made lands available for homestead settlement, uh, some of those lands were claimed uh, principally near water uh, because then uh, agriculture was possible. But uh, the vast majority, uh, roughly two-thirds of the lands uh, in the state of Utah, uh, went unclaimed. Uh, and uh, the federal government uh, uh, ultimately, uh, in 1976, uh, formally uh, decided uh, when Congress adopted the Federal Land Policy and Management Act uh, to continue to retain those lands in federal ownership uh, because uh, there simply wasn't much disposal activity going on, uh, and it was believed uh, at the national level that uh, the federal government uh, should uh, engage in uh, active management of those lands under a multiple-use principle. Hmm. I mean, it's such an interesting thing when you um, – because the West kind of gets an interesting reputation that guns – um, big into property rights, water, hello, uh, big, big water battles, kind of grazing, ranching, you know, industry like that. Um, but property matters. And it, it almost, I guess it just matters a lot. And so I wonder if it doesn't keep 
a lot of the Westerners in a in a weird position toward the federal government. You know, kind of as a, they're they're in opposition to the government. Uh, well, there there has uh, long been a history of a federal state uh, conflict over uh, federal lands and federal management of these lands. Uh, if we go back to uh, the turn of the uh, or the late 19th century, turn of the 20th century, the uh, Congress authorized the president to create forest reserves. Uh, the presidents uh, did uh, what are now known as our national forests. Uh, the Western states uh, uh, fought uh, the creation of those uh, national forests and, among other things, asserted that the states uh, had to have a say in uh, the federal government's decision to reserve these lands and to manage them as uh, national forests. And the Supreme Court uh, ultimately said uh, in a couple of decisions in 1910 that uh, it was up to Congress uh, under uh, the property clause to decide uh, whether or not to retain these lands in federal ownership or to um, uh, convey them into private ownership or to do something else with them. Yeah. Uh, so the, the states basically lost uh, that series of cases, uh, establishing a, a principle of uh, broad federal authority over uh, these federal lands. Interesting. And, you know, when, when we have a good, you know, a good fire that spreads thousands of acres, yeah, that's when we kind of like the feds coming in, <laughs> put out that bad boy. Let's take a break. We're talking with Robert Keiter, who uh, is a, a distinguished professor at the University of Utah, uh, director of the Wallace Stegner Center of Land, Resources, and Environment. He's a law professor and an expert in natural resources. We're just picking his brain, trying to figure out about, uh, you know, the land ownership. Federal land versus state. The states, a lot of them are starting to complain. They want some of their land back. They, they want it to be, you know, a little bit more proportionate, maybe. But, man, they've got an uphill climb. We'll take a break more with Robert Keiter after the break. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, that's some good tunage. You guys are going out of your way to get some good sounds. This land is your land, folks. Either way, whether it's in your state or in your federal government, you own it. Come on, you pay your taxes. Right? Well, there's a movement of that's going on that people are wanting, uh, some of the states want their land back. Utah, I mean, I mean these are states that, 50-ish percent of their land is owned by the federal government. When you look at the West, it's a big deal for a lot of the people in the West. And so we're trying to talk about uh, what's really going on with this argument and and does it really matter? So we wanted to bring in an expert that we think could sort it through for us. Uh, Robert Keiter is joining us. He is, again, the director of the Wallace Stegner Center of Land, Resources, and Environment a law professor at the University of Utah and an expert in natural resource law. He's been cited in a, um, in a few articles that to, that are kind of giving us insight into some of the potential lawsuits that they might be undertaking or the states, some of the states might be undertaking. 
to get their land back. So we appreciate you being here again, Robert. Thanks for uh, your time. Thank you. When when we talk about this, um, I mean, it's I mean, there's precedence, there's history, there's already been kind of a principle set, I guess, legally for these states being able to go back and 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 take their land back. But there there seemed to be a real practical example of why we might want to give more responsibility back to the states during the government shutdown. Uh, I think it was in in 2013. The government shuts down. As part of that, they shut down the parks all around the country. Some of the parks in the state of Utah, we, they want that you the state of Utah wanted to keep those parks open because of the industry of it. They were making money. There's a lot of visitors. There's a lot of travel, and the feds were shutting it down. So the state of Utah said, "Let us run it." They ran it, and were able to keep you know the cities and the towns around some of these federally owned places running and moving. Um, what do you think, Robert? Is it is it crazy to think that it it might be better managed locally than nationally on a national level? Well, uh, let me speak first to the shutdown. Yeah, uh, the state of Utah did uh, make an arrangement with the National Park Service to reopen the parks, but uh, it did so by uh, uh, providing funds uh, for the Park Service to actually open and manage the parks uh, rather than the state. Right. Uh, your other point, though, about uh, who's better able to manage uh, the lands uh, is uh, a constant point of conflict between uh, the federal governments and uh, the federal government and the state uh, governments. Uh, there are uh, regular allegations of uh, mismanagement, too much uh, bureaucraties, um, uh, too much uh, uh, environmental analysis, uh, uh, the, uh, different priorities, that sort of thing uh, that uh, regularly surface in these uh, arguments. Uh, basically, I think at, at one level, this is a federalism question: mm-hmm. uh, whether the lands are better managed, lands are better managed under standards that are set at a national level or uh, at a local level, uh, and uh, who has uh, uh, greater knowledge uh, and greater ability to manage. The uh, realities, I think, in terms of how the federal lands end up being managed is that Congress sets pretty general standards, multiple use, sustained yield for national forests and BLM lands, and gives a a pretty large amount of discretion to uh, the local federal land Mm. managers to uh, sort out how that plays out uh, on the ground. Um, the states assert that uh, they'd be more efficient uh, managing the lands, uh, that they derive greater revenues from uh, the lands than the federal government currently does. Uh, that probably turns on exactly how the states, uh, uh, and the state of Utah in particular, uh, would proceed to manage uh, lands if it uh, uh, owned them. Mm. And uh, at this point, uh, with the uh, legislation that's on the books, uh, we don't know exactly how uh, the state of Utah would manage the lands if it were to reacquire them, or to acquire them, I should put it that way. Um, the state currently manages at school trust lands under an obligation to maximize revenue. Yeah. Uh, that is to promote uh, uh, mineral development and uh, other money-making activities. And they do that for the schools, right? So they use that, that land correct. to generate money through mineral rights, whatever other rights, and then... That money goes to the kids. 
That is correct, and that has been one of the strongest, uh, uh, I think, uh, political arguments that the state has made uh, this time around in, uh, uh, as this matter has heated up. Uh, in contrast, under a multiple-use regime, uh, commodity production, mineral development, that sort of thing, uh, is one of several different uses that the federal government, uh, federal land managers consider uh, in deciding how to uh, proceed with management. Mm. Uh, the other, I think, important point on the federal side uh, on this is that over time, uh, the federal government, I, th I think it's fair to say, uh, has uh, uh, moved away from a pretty heavy emphasis on uh, commodity production on its uh, uh, multiple-use lands uh, and toward uh, uh, more concern for uh, environmental values, amenity values, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so that in turn plays into some of the frustration of the uh, state. Yeah. And then you just look at, I don't know, I mean, I, I look at it kind of administratively. I think of the federal government um, as, as, this, as, a, as a pretty big monstrosity. And then when you think of the 600 and whatever million acres that it needs to run, it's got four federal agencies. The United States Forest Service runs about 193 million acres, which about the size of Turkey. The National Park Service uh, is over about uh, uh, about 80 million acres, the size of Norway. The Bureau of Land Management, 248 million acres, about the size of Egypt. Fish and Wildlife Services, 89 million acres, about the size of Germany. Uh, and um, I, and the agricultural department. So you sit there and you think there's five departments that exist for the management of this, and yet, so the money the money must be extraordinary, and the bureaucracy, and I don't know. It just seems like it's a lot, and yet there's this lawsuit, not the lawsuit, but there's this this movement going forward for the states to get their rights to get this property back. Where do you think that's going to go, Robert? In the end, is there is is there going to be a change? Is there going to be a political decision to this that? might be able to change the legal precedents. Is there any shot of the land being given back? Or not given back, but, you know, reassigned? Right. Um, it, well, at, at this point, uh, Utah uh, is the only state that has indicated that it's prepared to mount a lawsuit against the federal government uh, based upon uh, claims under the Utah's uh, Statehood Act. Uh, the uh, uh, Several other western states have basically endorsed the idea of uh, transfer of the lands to the states, uh, but have not indicated they're going to sue. The legal claim that Utah has is a very difficult one, in my judgment, yeah. uh, given uh, all of the language in the Statehood uh, Enabling Act, particularly a couple of what are known as disclaimer clauses that say that the state hereby disclaims any interest uh, or ownership yeah. claims to these lands. So uh, I think the legal argument is uh, very difficult. Uh, it does, though, set up uh, a political dynamic. Uh, and I think uh, you mentioned uh, a couple of our state representatives uh, filing uh, mm -hmm. or, or contemplating legislation. And uh, it's probably more likely that uh, this issue will play out there. The big question that I have in my mind uh, on that is why would – uh, Congress, uh, which is composed of representatives from across the country, right. um, give up uh, the, uh, uh, this asset, uh, that is the federal lands, uh, that it, particularly in terms of mineral 
royalties and revenues uh, produce a substantial chunk of the uh, federal treasury, and that doesn't even account for, you know, some things like uh, wilderness and parks and uh, right. wildlife that uh, people in other parts of the country value. See, that, so you're thinking. It's you know there's you're giving up big assets even though some of these are just you know dust fields and dirt fields but they're giving up a lot of mineral rights they'd give up a lot of money so why would the other forty whatever or thirty eight states would ever do that right, hmm. right. yeah yeah and, and uh, the other thing I think to keep in mind uh, from a historical perspective is that we've we've sort of seen this. Uh, uh, issue arise uh, now for a third time in the last uh, oh, uh, little over a quarter century, almost a half century. Uh, first with the Sagebrush Rebellion in the 1970s uh, that eventually fizzled, uh, where the states asserted an ownership claim to the lands, uh, what was known as the County Supremacy Movement in the 1990s, uh, where the states asserted that uh, and counties that they had the right to control the lands. Uh, and now, in a somewhat different guise, uh, the claim is being made under the uh, State Enabling Acts uh, that the federal government is obligated to uh, dispose of uh, or return these lands to the states. Um, uh, as the politics uh, wax and wane at the national level, uh, these issues seem to wax and yeah. wane at the national level. Well, and then it just there's just this weird echo. One of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I don't think most of the listeners nationwide knew of this disparity. I mean, I think that I don't think ma- many people understand that 0.8% of New York and point and 85% of uh Nevada are owned by the federal government. Got they it. probably didn't know that disparity. But right. th- then there's this weird idea in my head that so, you know, some of the western states already feel like they're beholden to the federal government in a lot of land use or rights to get into access in la- on certain federal land and stuff. But then there's the, the moment where the president, uh, past or present, decides to make a national monument and, um, you know, by mandate, by fiat or whatever, and, and they go create like a, a national monument and then all of a sudden usurp more property or take more property or, or make something a national park that now really destroys mineral access to mineral rights or access to roads to mineral rights. And that happened in Utah with President Clinton years ago. I mean, so then that creates other issues, right? Because just by mandate, basically, by presidential signature, we can also do stuff with this land that obligates the state. That is correct. Although, uh, uh, in this, but the president's authority to create a national monument was granted to him specifically by Congress under what's known as the Antiquities Act. Uh, so Congress having granted, it can always uh, take away that authority. Okay. There's been legislation to try to do that. Uh, it hasn't succeeded uh, over the years. Also worth noting that uh, in Utah we have five major national parks. Uh, four of those five parks uh, were created with acrimony. Uh, by uh, presidents under the Antiquities <laughs> Act, they? and they're now important uh, elements of Utah's economy. Yeah, now and then they create a boon, don't they? So, yes. and, and and it's interesting because you can almost—it almost seems like with President Clinton, it was something he held on to almost till the end of his presidency to do stuff like that. And, and I don't know, there just seems to be a vibe in the air 
that President Obama might be gearing up for some of that. So, and, and it's interesting too because when you look at the disparity, um, a lot of the Western states are uh, Republican uh, or kind of more conservative, um, and yet. I don't know. So it just seems like it sets up those little weird – and Clive and Bundy is not a good example at all because it just was just a train wreck. Um, But in the future – so you basically say it's going to be an uphill battle short of legislative uh, strategizing. There's not probably going to be much of a move here and it's just going to be – we'll just keep bringing up this battle about every 20 years. Uh, That would not surprise me in terms of how this plays out. And uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, uh, these are public lands. Uh, Congress has the authority under the Constitution over them, under the property clause, which means uh, that there's a political element uh, in the decision as to uh, how to manage them, what priorities prevail, uh, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. And and again, again, because they're public lands and federal lands, uh, you are – we're all members of the great USA, so it's ours as well. <laughs> uh, true enough. And one of the things that has happened over the years is that Congress has given uh, the public uh, a greater role in the say over how these lands uh, are managed through planning laws and uh, the National Environmental Policy Act and similar laws. And it, yeah. And I don't you think it's beautiful? Like, because when, when you really. When you, it's one thing to be fighting for it in Congress. It's another thing to be in the small towns around these these beautiful, incredible parks, and just see the true love of the park in the in those people. So, I mean, it's it's a really interesting thing where we make these decisions in in Washington, but it's so in the hearts of the people that live there, that breathe there, and that and that run those parks. Well, you've hit on, uh, I think, an important point, and uh, it seems to me that that's potentially a a sort of a common point uh, that uh, we all might come around. Uh, That is a shared uh, sense of place uh, for uh, many of these uh, lands and the sort of uh, unique uh, uh, landscapes and resources that they present. And uh, that gives me some hope that... uh, we, we can move forward by uh, sitting down and uh, uh, collaboratively trying to work out uh, how best uh, to proceed, uh, taking into account uh, both uh, national interests uh, in uh, resources and uh, local interests and concerns. No, I totally agree. And, and somehow I think we just need to get a real big bus ride from D.C. with all of the congressmen and women and take them across country. And let them just experience all of these parks to see what's really going on, because it's it is it actually would be I think I think it would be life changing and uh, policy changing to just see what's really happening on the ground. Well, I, I would certainly be educational for those <laughs> who haven't been out here in the wide open spaces of the West. I'd love them to see the Grand Canyon. Indeed, don't you think? Yes. Well, Robert, we appreciate you and uh, keep up the great work in fighting for the lands. Uh, Robert Kiter again, director of Wallace Stegner Center of Land Resources and Environment, a law professor at the University of Utah, and expert in natural resource law. We are going to take a break, my friends. Uh, come back to a coach's corner, just about you know the responsibility, your stewardship of land and of life and of, you know, it's one thing to go all green. It's another thing to just care, for heaven's sakes, about uh, the fact that you have a a great country that affords you the opportunity to go to state parks, to, to have clean water to recreate in. We'll take a break, my friends. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's such an interesting discussion, too, when you weave it into the, the, the grand scheme of politics, right? So, and a lot of people, you just may not care. But in the West, we're having all these battles now over water, right? And this water comes across land, and this water comes through rivers. And who owns these rivers? And who owns this land? And who owns the water rights? And in the West, it's huge. If you have property without a water right, you're dead. And if you have um, land that uh, doesn't belong to your state, it makes some feel fairly insecure, especially when politically decisions can be made that don't necessarily represent the West because they're made by people that have never even been to the West. <laughs> Makes sense? So all of a sudden, it, it seems it starts to create this weird tension. And you, you may feel it and you see it. You see, that's why people just get away and they go hide and they just get some property back out in the West and they just disappear. That's where all the bandits, the outlaws went. And so part of what I want to do on the show is just make sure we're kind of understanding each other. I mean, I understand the average person from New York doesn't probably care about land in the West. But it's going to explain a lot of other, you know, intricate issues. Like when you start to see that California doesn't have enough water and they need the water that's upstream in these other states – you're going to see some pretty interesting battles starting to take place. And I think you might see some potentially scary battles because you're now fighting over water. And, uh, you know, you might start to notice that California tends to have a different political bent than maybe some of the upstream states. So anyway, and it kind of ends up being a theme of this show. The world is complex. So anytime you think it's, Black or white, uh, red or blue, good or bad, you're, you might be setting yourself up to missing the nuance of the in-between. And what's going on in-between is some interesting complexity. But as you heard in our with our last guest, Robert Keiter, where the joy comes, where the benefit comes, we can fight about the land and who owns it. And yet in the end, I would go with who actually uses it and loves it. Who's embracing it? Who's taking care of it? Who's the one that wakes up every morning taking care of it and, and, and weeding it and protecting it and, and, and managing it? And so they should have a say too, right? They should have a say. The people that wake up with Bryce Canyon in their backyard, one of the great parks uh, of this country, and if you haven't even heard of it, then you might want to go explore it before you start voting on it. Make sense? Uh, Just like I wouldn't ever assume we should be voting on what's going on in New York uh, parks. I sometimes wonder why D.C. is voting on stuff that's going on in my backyard as far as natural parks and resources. But that's how it works. That's how we all got into the union. We've got to play by the rules now. So uh, get out there, though. And I I seriously, I just was talking to a woman yesterday who went to the Grand Canyon. I've been to the Grand Canyon once in my life. No, twice in my life. Incredible. Incredible. It's an eight-hour drive from my house. 
I've been there twice. My kids, never been there. Never been there. It's too far to drive, Dad. So we got to take better advantage of these resources and care for them more. And everybody, get to the West and see the great land that you own as members of the, the great United States of America. Folks, that's hour number one. Can't do the show without you, remember? So next hour, we will be getting into the uh, the great debate and just trying to understand better what's going on. They just removed the Confederate flag uh, at 10 o'clock Eastern time today. They're removing the Confederate flag from the Capitol in South Carolina. We'll be doing a little history lesson on the Confederate flag up uh, next hour right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, friends. to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two of the show. Here's Ben Wasden's favorite song. Sings it all day long. Who's, who sings this? Black, what's her first name? Rebecca Black. Rebecca Black. Yeah, this is a good song. Mm. It's Friday. <sighs> the funny thing is, Ben sings it every day. So it kind of loses its allure when you... When he's singing it every day. Hey, we got a great show for you today. Uh, I, I also have a nomination for President of the United States. I will be nominating somebody for President of the United States on the Matt Townsend Show. And, uh, but I'm going to wait till the next block. When we come back, I'm going to then tell you who I will nominate as president. Um, we're going to be talking with John Price in a few minutes about the Confederate flag controversy. He wrote an article in the Huffington Post that um, he's he's a folklorist. And a lot of what goes on around the whole argument around the Confederate flag is a lot of uh, folklore and kind of romanticism of the flag. And yet we then overlook other realities and racist stories because we like the folklore. So we'll be talking with him about uh, the Confederate flag that right now I believe is being uh, taken off of the at, at the Capitol in South Carolina, taken down that flag. Uh, great show after. We're also going to um, be doing some um, movie reviews with Rod Gustafson from Parent Pre- Previews. He'll be joining us as well. We've got a full day for heaven's sakes. One of the things, too, I want, uh, you know, just as you're out there in listener land, be noticing what's going on in South Carolina. Nine people were killed. And yesterday, um, as they were signing the legislation that passed in uh, the state there uh, in South Carolina, in the state legislature, about the flag, powerfully, nine pens were used to sign the 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 new law about the flag and taking the flag off of um, government properties. Those nine pens, by the way, will be going to the families of the nine victims in that church shooting. And how fitting is that? Because a tragedy turned really powerfully into action and service because of, I believe, a just 
faithful, forgiving, God-fearing people that love God, that turned to grace, which turned to change. They all forgave, and that spirit, I think, carried the legislature to a major majority that passed a law quickly. So, folks, if we want more efficiency in this world, let's just be better people. Let's get over ourselves a little bit. And uh, we also need leadership. We also need leadership to lead that energy and that those issues. Okay, So we'll be talking about that on the show today. But before we do anything else, let's go to Kathy Aiken and find out what's coming down in the headlines. Well, Matt, as you just mentioned, the Confederate flag is being removed this morning from the South Carolina Capitol. Now this is about our children, because when they go back and look in the history books, while we're still grieving, when the emotions start to fade, the history of the actions that took place by everyone in South Carolina to get us to this moment is one that we can all be proud of. That was Governor Nikki Haley, who signed the bill into law yesterday, removing the flag that has flown on state house grounds for the last 50 years. The flag will someday be housed in a museum. The state Senate and House debated the bill earlier this week after a gunman killed nine black people in a Charleston church last month. Republicans and Democrats are asking Catherine Archuleta to resign. She's the head of the Office of personnel management. This after it was announced the recent government computer hack has affected nearly 21 million Americans, a much larger number than originally announced. Though officials say there is no evidence that any of the stolen information has been used for identity theft, many are still very concerned. Stolen were social security numbers, employment history, home addresses, and financial records. James Holmes, the man accused of killing nine people at an Aurora, Colorado theater, will not testify in his death penalty trial. Back in 2012, Holmes allegedly burst into the midnight showing of a Batman movie, which also injured 70 people. His defense is expected to rest today with closing arguments from both sides scheduled for Tuesday. According to a new poll, Donald Trump leads the GOP presidential field at 15 percent. That's four points over former Florida Governor Jeb Bush and Senator Rand Paul, who tied for second place. Trump has been front and center with much of the media recently after controversial remarks on immigration. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, Senator Marco Rubio, and former Governor Mike Huckabee shared the third spot at 9% each. The Michigan doctor who falsely told hundreds of people they had cancer is expected to be sentenced today. Dr. Fareed Fatah has pleaded guilty to medical fraud and could get a life sentence. Fatah gave hundreds of people painful cancer treatments when they didn't even have the disease. Black civil rights activists are seeking to have Bill Cosby's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame removed. This coming after a deposition from Cosby in 2005 was released this week, revealing the actor obtained sedatives to give the woman women he wanted to have sex with. The Hollywood Chamber of Commerce said it has no plans to remove the star of the comedian. If you like to kill a mockingbird, you're probably one of the millions of people waiting to get Harper Lee's much-anticipated book, Go Set a Watchman. The book was actually submitted before the classic, classic To Kill a Mockingbird, was released, and it was rediscovered, this new book, just last year. It will be released on Tuesday, but you can read the first chapter online. And Matt, researchers have figured out why women live longer than men. Did Why? You, did you know that just two of the world's 53 living supercentenarians, or people 110 and older, are men? Just two of them. Well, that's that's not fair. Yeah. Before 1840. That's discrimination. That's <laughs> discrimination. Yeah, we might as well add something to it. Before 1840, the death rates of the two sexes was pretty similar, but in 1880... 
That began to change due to improved diets, vaccinations, and better health care. And because of those factors, female death rates have dropped 70% faster than men. And the big reason? Um, um. <laughs> What's the biggie that affects men the most? Uh, oh, NFL. <laughs> yeah, the NFL. Heart disease. Oh, heart disease. <laughs> heart disease. Yeah, or the NFL. I mean, the NFL's <laughs> killing a lot of men. Must have really worded that wrong or something. Okay, yeah. that came according to the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That's rude. A report in Life Science says men may be more susceptible to cardiovascular problems, and their different weight distribution can play a role. <laughs> yeah. So that's <laughs> we wear our weight on our belly. A belly. You know what? I think there is a correlation though between uh, weight distribution and the NFL. <laughs> Did you not think? And heart disease in the NFL. (laughs) It's all related. Where do I get most of my Uh, junk food? Watching the NFL. NFL. You grab those trans fats and it goes right to your heart. We can't blame everything on the NFL. But we can blame some things. A lot of lot of things have been blamed like on the why, NFL recently. Why do men die sooner? <laughs> Even in Japan. They're watching too many football games. That's exactly right. Either that or their women are so tired of them watching too many football games that they kill them. Isn't or historically a lot of the food was made by women. So, so they women made make the fat the f- food to kill their husbands. Well, or put something else in the food. <laughs> I'm not I don't wanna I don't wanna say that, but I just did. But it just seems ironic. So women make it. They know they're not going to eat it, but they know the men will uh-huh. eat it yeah. and get more fat and uh-huh. die. Okay. Paula Deen, a la Paula Deen. <laughs> she loves her butter. She loves her butter. And you know what? She loves it even more when like, her husband's grabbing his chest <laughs> in pain with pain radiating down the left side. You want some more butter with that, honey? <laughs> it's interesting. That, I, that is an interesting thing that women – are living longer. And that one 108-year-old woman is now going to throw the, the a ball pitch. out. Yeah, the first pitch tomorrow. The Which, Seattle again, Mariners. doesn't seem quite fair because it's – I mean, how many 108-year-old men get to do that? <laughs> Probably none. I'm guessing there's none since there's only two men that are older than 110. I don't yeah. know about under 110, but I'm guessing there's not very many. I want to live to 120. You do not. I do too. <laughs> I do too. And Why? I want to – just because I think that's fun. Because I think you can get away with a lot of stuff when you're old, stuff you can't get away with when you're younger. Like? You can say stuff because they're like they're not sure if you have dementia or if you're just you can just say stuff. <laughs> you can eat anything you want, right? Because whenever sure. when you're 110, eat whatever you want. For sure. What someone's going to say? I don't you know if you should have that. a second yeah. bowl of ice cream. Yeah, that might hurt you. That might go straight to your heart. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, I'm eating more. I mean, really, you're free. So to me, it seems like once you're older than 90, mm-hmm. free ticket. Yeah. What What do you have? Does it matter? Right. I agree. You can do anything you want. You can say anything. But if you want to live 30 years longer than that 120, you better be careful. That's true. And everyone's like, well, I only want to live that long if I have all of my faculties, faculties in my right. body. No. I just want to. <laughs> what are the, what's the percentage of people that still have their faculties after 90? Yeah, very. <laughs> but you know what many. I want? I want my kids to pay. I want oh, them to take sure. care of me. And I'm gonna... <laughs> that's why we were talking about making sure your kids have great careers and you're right. pushing them in the right exactly. career path. Make right? sure they're really well insured, right. that they have money. And they build big houses that you can live in. Yeah, because if not, they'll just send you to, you know, they'll just send you to some home. and. Ah! Oh. Well, gosh, that's kind of depressing. Anyway, we'll change the subject. Hey, uh, great stuff, Kathy. Today we are going to be getting into this, uh, the discussion about the Confederate flag, the, the whole controversy there. 
the flag is coming down in South Carolina as we speak, and um, there is there's just a lot of there's a lot of feelings there, isn't there? And when we come back, we're going to be speaking with John Price, a folklorist who wrote a really interesting article in the Huffington Post uh, that gets into the the folklore behind that flag. And then at some point, we've got to also address, you know, some of the the racist tendencies, not just the great romantic stories like Gone with the Wind. Let's get to the real stories also that exist around that flag. Just trying to uncover it, understand it better so that you can explain it to your family and your kids. This is the Matt Townsend Show, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's just powerful to see uh, what's happening in in South Carolina. And I wanted to give us just some more insight, more ideas about the Confederate flag controversy and the issue there. I also want to now officially nominate uh, Governor Nikki Haley as president for the presidency of the United States. I'm going to nominate her. I don't know if it works that way. But she needs to be running. Because just, I mean, again, there's a lot of emotion around this, and we don't want to turn it into a folklorish moment, which we are, and they are. But there's something really powerful that happens. Nine people die, and the people of Charleston step up in a way that was huge. These people let somebody into their church, studied with them, then were killed by them. Then those families of those same believers— forgave the person, and a community then rallied, and people heard the rally under leadership of Governor uh, Haley, but also um, just the local leadership as well. We have a clip just to show you the emotion around this issue and the decision. I wanted you to hear this clip from Jenny Horn, who is a representative of the Charleston delegation, right before the vote on the flag issue. Take a symbol of hate off these grounds. And if any of you vote to amend, you are ensuring that this flag will fly beyond Friday. And for the widow of Senator Pinckney and his two young daughters, that would be adding insult to injury. And I will not be a part of it. Mm. Do you feel the energy there? Uh, the vote was 94 to 20 to take down the flag, giving final approval for that bill to be passed. And within 24 hours from that passage, the flag came down today. So uh, powerful, powerful stuff. But there was also there's another whole history to this that we wanted to get out there. Remember the movie Gone with the Wind, one of the highest grossing movies. If it were compared to today's time, it would be it would beat out everybody at about three billion dollars. That film was so powerful, and it was so popular because it was based in the lost cause ideology. This ideology, with the recent controversy around the Confederate flag, is uh, is being is now um, the the uh, crux, the the focus of our next guest, John Price, a folklorist, joins us now to discuss his article about this lost cause ideology. John Price, welcome to the show, my friend. 
Hi, how are you? Good, good. What, what is, uh, talk to us about um, why are so many holding on to the, the history of the flag so tightly? What, and, yet, and yet there's also a racist component to the history that's, that's more recent than the, than the Confederate times. Talk to us about the history of this. Sure. There's there's a couple things going on. Um, so w- what would what we call the lost cause is sort of coming out of the Civil War. There's this very um, deliberate effort by um, the survivors and their families, more importantly, um, to kind of uh, rewrite the script, right? Rewrite just what happened. Um, and you know, there's you know there's a couple of really practical reasons for, for doing this. One is, of course, we want to bring everyone back together. We yeah. want to um, unify the country again. You know, this was a very, you know, traumatic event on many different levels. Um, you know, the other kind of less talked about psychological problem is that, you know, this is the first time a group of Americans have lost a war, is the Civil War. And, um, well, in popular memory, this is the first time a, a a bunch of Americans have lost. And so it's a very traumatic event mm. on an identity level. Um, and so the Daughters of the Confederacy is formed um, sort of to prop up their brothers, husbands, fathers, um, and make them feel good. This kind of gets twisted a little bit, and you get um, uh, a sort of uh, more mundane version of white supremacy, if you can, you know, kind of go with me on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, where now it's like, okay, we're we're celebrating what it meant to be like before the Civil War, what life was like back then, when things were simpler, when things were more romantic, um, and you know, these were these were noble men fighting for a noble cause of states' rights. These were not um, bad men fighting for bad cause of slavery. Right. So really um, it, it was so, the, the, mm-hmm. this, the flag became a symbol then of, and kind of a re, uh, um, re imaging of the, of the South's, the South's loss in the war. Yeah. A rebranding yeah. So, almost. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And, but what happens is of course, you know, uh, the racism angle starts yeah. to uh, become a little bit more prominent, to put it mildly, and you have things like the Klan start to crop up, and this is one of, the, you know, they, they, they deliberately adopted the battle flag of the Confederacy um, because they're fighting a war, you know, in their eyes, they're fighting a war against um, freed slaves and all these things. Um, and then it sort of takes off from there, and it, it kind of diverges into these two different uh, two different meanings, right? There's the more mundane sort of, oh, look at how romantic the South is. Right. And then there's the more literal, oh, we are really racist and <laughs> we wish we hadn't lost the war. <laughs> it's so interesting. But I love I love your take, again, because people may not know it, that you're a professor at Pennsylvania State University and a folklorist. So, but I mean, we need the storytelling, right? Because the storytelling is what keeps the romantic side going, and the stories side, the storytelling would also keep for those that want it the racist side going. Yeah, and you know, I've 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 seen some pushback from other academics, like, why are you talking about the lost cause? Why are you talking about this? No, no historians take this seriously. No historians are advocating this, you know, and haven't been for a very long time. And my response to that is, well. 
I'm a, I'm a folklorist. It doesn't matter what you guys in the ivory tower are saying. <laughs> what matters is what the people are telling themselves. That's right. And what the people are telling themselves is this was about states' rights. This is about a noble heritage. Um, you know, all of these incorrect sort of things. It, and it really is um, – It's there is this kind of north-south feeling of this. I guess there's been like 60 – how many was it? Like 60-something amendments have been proposed to bring that flag down. And they just yeah. – so there's there's something in the culture there. And to me, I believe culture is created through conversation, right? It's through – it's through yeah. – it's just institutionalized through the stories we're all telling. And um, something was able to keep the flag around uh, – I mean, I guess it was almost taken out, uh, what, 20, 15 years ago, but then – I don't. I don't remember. But in the end, there's a there's a completely different angle that was taken recently on the flag that was inherently directly racist. Right, and I think what happened, and you know, this is just my personal opinion, but we kind of got comfortable on a cultural level with seeing um, Confederate imagery because there was no real sort of repercussions. There was no. Um, uh, there wasn't a lot of bad things going on right. associated with it. Like, oh, country music is using it. Okay, that's fine. I like yeah. country music too. Dukes of Hazard. Um, Come on. Sudden, I'm sorry. The Dukes of Hazard. They're just right. they're, they're just running a General Lee car. No big deal. Right. Exactly. You know, NASCAR is great. You know, yeah. I like NASCAR. You know. Um. But what happened is, you know, now we have a, a, a heinous act being put in the confederacy's name being put you know using the imagery and it kind of i think it shook people up and made them realize that oh wait this is what is actually going on this is no longer a toothless symbol this is a very real symbol and we need to it's long past time that we need to um settle this it's been 150 years since the end of the civil war and yeah. the civil rights movement has been you know, ostensibly over for decades. I mean, it's, it's, I'm glad it's down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where, where else have you seen, um, where else have you seen history revised? I mean, in the civil war, what, what, what other symbols are, are there other symbols? Are there other stories that we tell a lot about the civil war th- that might even, that also parallel the lost cause or was it just, you know, was it was it just the flag? What was it? What, what were some other ways that that came out? So the flag issue is kind of um, multi multifaceted because you know, as been, has rightly pointed out, um, that is not the actual flag of the Confederacy. The actual flag of the Confederacy is like the Mississippi State flag, yeah. or something like that. Um, so uh, there's a couple different flags we could go after, but um, <laughs> so my big issue with that is. Not so much that people are kind of telling themselves the wrong history. Those are state-sponsored, right? And that's, you know, I don't think states should be sponsoring um, this sort of revisionist history. Um, other areas you'll see, you know, pretty pretty standard things you hear about the Civil War aren't factually, um, you know, history. It's more traditional memory. So things like... Um, you know, when you look at paintings and all of the Confederate generals are on their horses and all of the unions are kind of a faceless mass, right? <laughs> that's sort of the imagery that we're looking at that sort of reinforces this idea that the Confederacy is noble. They're the, they're the knights on shining armor, and um, the union is just kind of this mechanical machine um, going through the South, destroying everything they can. Um, so the other issue with the Lost Cause is that this has been – 
institutionalized, you know, in a very literal sense that it's been going on for, you know, 100, 150 years. So people now just assume that, you know, when I say, you know, no, you guys are actually fighting for slavery, they accuse me of being a revisionist. And I say, no, look <laughs> at the look at look at what South Carolina was saying in 1860. They're talking about slavery the whole time. Um so it's kind of warped this view of what is and is not revisionism. Oh, that's um, and so that's true. the big issue I have as a cultural historian is, you know, you guys are kind of buying into the wrong facts here. Well, and yeah. Oh, and there and there's even more from your article that uh, we'll come back and talk to. Again, we're talking uh, talk about we're talking with John Price, uh professor at Pennsylvania State University, also a folklorist. He's, he's teaching us the storytelling, the art of uh, the art of the uh, I guess the reframe, the art of the 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 remake of the Civil War, and just symbolically some of the things that uh, the stories we tell, the imagery that we use, including the flag, uh, the Confederate flag, the Confederate battle flag. Um, interesting. It's interesting how it takes on a different meaning and how we might not even be telling the whole story. We'll come back, give you more of uh, more of the inside scoop um, on the history right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is John Price, a folklorist and professor at Pennsylvania State University. He also wrote a really interesting article uh, that was published in the Huffington Post, You're a Racist and a Traitor. Um, Again, there's just historically, think about it. The South lost the battle, the Civil War, and... At some point, everybody would have to make sense of that back in the day, right? You you were fighting for a cause, a cause everybody believed in. You were fighting for it, right? You lose the battle. What do you do? Now, how do you sit in your loss? And how do you turn it into something that's maybe more noble or still has value so that those lives don't have to be lost? And... I mean, there's an interesting irony going on where nine people are savagely murdered in South Carolina because of racism and a symbol that can date back to the Civil War, a symbol that many have just tried to make about freedom or states' rights. Um, That symbol also has been for years not talked about as – as a symbol of the South's fighting for slavery. Many would argue the South didn't go to war just for slavery. I mean, to fight against slavery. They had other reasons. But our guest joining us today is we've got to be careful of kind of the the revision of, of our history. John Price joins us. John, again, thanks for being here. I am fascinated by your article. And it's there's something there's something that just seems so natural about wanting to use folklore and romanticism to fix something that we weren't, that, that was painful. Sure. Yeah. And we do it. I mean, we do it all the time. You know, it's, I, you know, I, I, one of my areas of focus is, you know, popular culture. So, you know, war movies do this all the time. Yeah. Um, whether it's, whether it's, historically accurate or not we you know we wanted to see john wayne we want to see uh 
Tom Hanks storming D-Day, you know? Um, and so uh, I do, I think you're right. There is something very natural about wanting to add uh, justification and cause for um, the sacrifices that are made, the pain that's been endured. Yeah. It's, and then again, as a folklorist and, a, and an expert in kind of in understanding how language would change things, even the language that's now going on that could actually turn the legislature in uh, in South Carolina to vote ninety something to twenty something for this amendment, um, it's even starting to take on a really kind of interesting uh, narrative as well, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Um, you see a lot of uh, pushback against this notion that oh, or you know, th- this is the the rebel flag that we're we're really just opposing, you know, an overreach of government and everything. Right. Um, which is interesting. You know, the states' rights argument, one of the most um, uh, dominant uses of the states' rights argument was by abolitionists huh. who wanted to nullify the um, – or effectively nullify the Fugitive Slave Acts. <laughs> and so um, – yeah, states' rights was a cause of the Civil War, just not the one you think. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? So, so really, the, we can call it economic. It was it was a battle over economics. It was a battle over the North oppressing and pushing it down on the the South. It was a battle of um, of states' rights. It really was a battle of slavery in every regard. Yeah, I mean. Slavery was the labor source of the South. So if you say it's about economics, you're saying it's about <laughs> slavery. Right. Um, if you say it's about, um, you know, one of my favorite talking points that's been thrown at me the last couple of weeks is, oh, well, Abraham Lincoln wasn't an abolitionist. That's true. He was effectively a free soiler, which means he didn't want slavery to expand to the West, yeah. which is what the South was trying to do, was expand slavery to the West and South into Cuba, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> um, and so... It wouldn't have worked yeah, anyway. <laughs> this, no, yeah, right. This notion that slavery would have gone away on its own or something, I mean, the South was actively trying to expand slavery, which is why they didn't like Lincoln. They didn't like Lincoln because he didn't want them to expand slavery. <laughs> right. So, I mean, none of this is kind of... Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not making this up. You can go read what South Carolina was saying in 1860. You can go read what Georgia was saying in 1860. These are not, you know, these are not subtle people. They're they're telling you what they're doing. And and yet uh, historically, we've kind of we've softened it, right? We've rewritten it. We've we've romanticized it. We've made heroes of it. Sure. And And then it all kind of runs into a wall in the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, you know, history is a tricky thing. Um, nobody wants to believe that their ancestors were bad people um, or that their ancestors did bad things, right? History right. is ugly. Every one of us has, you know, every single person on the planet Earth has a bad thing in their past, yeah. you know, whether it's a personal or whether it's, you know, your grandfather or your great-grandfather, you know. And so um, the South just kind of, apparently still hasn't really come to terms with the fact that um, they did some bad things. And that's not, you know, that's not unique to the South. But I think I think what we're seeing is sort of a, a level of denial that is unique to the South. Is it? Um, and that's I find that unfortunate. Yeah. It does. How does that how does that change? Because an interesting uh, concept or idea here is 
none of the people that are making these arguments today really have a horse in the race historically. <laughs> you know, I mean, they they weren't there. They didn't fight it. It's just their heritage. It's their history. So I guess the history is their horse, except it seems like, you know, the letters written for why they were seceding from the nation. I mean, the, everything's there. The, ev- the information's there, but they just don't want to hear it, I guess, right? Yeah, I, I can't really explain it. Um, to me, I mean, you know, there's also this other sort of counter-narrative that, um, you know, so everyone, you know, if you want to believe that everyone in the South has been taught this sort of uh, revisionist sort of uh, history, they've also been taught, or apparently they've also been taught, that everyone in the North is taught that they're kind of, uh, the North is perfect. You know, yeah. the North didn't have any issues. They were fighting no, for the high, yeah. at all. You know, that's not, I'm from New Jersey. We, you know, we weren't. Um, we weren't taught that at all. We were taught that the North has has its own issues. The North, you know, was working through this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, people seem to be afraid of history, which, you know, as an historian kind of baffles me. I don't really understand why you would be afraid of history. But um, I think that's kind of where the conversation needs to go next. You know, you don't ban history. You confront it um, and you learn from it um, because ultimately at the end of the day, that's what history is there for. History is there so that you can learn from it and improve and not make the same mistakes. You know, there's the, the there's a joke among historians, you know, um, uh, those who those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do study history are doomed to watch everyone else repeat it, you know. <laughs> and so that's great. kind of, uh, the, you know, when I when I take a step back, this is where I'm this is where I see things kind of breaking down. It's, you know, you don't ban uh, uh, you know, gone with the wind. You learn from gone with the wind. Right. You say, okay, what's wrong with this story? What am, What am I seeing here that's 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 uncomfortable? Okay, how do I learn from this? Well, and the and the South is still my history. So I I live in the West. I'm not even I don't 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 hang the South's history on me. But it's my country and it's my history. And the North was my history. So in today's day and age, we all own it. We all own the good and the ugly, the bad, the right, the wrong, the up, the down. Right? I mean, it's ours. So learn from right. it. And I I totally agree. Yeah. And you know I I don't you know this sort of sectionalism doesn't really it, jive. It doesn't play, does it? Century America and um. That's that's another sort of uh, disconnect that's kind of going on now. Mm-hmm. But well, you can see the same thing happening uh, where you could re- the revisioning of the Iraq War and yeah. and the kind of the polarizing of the two stories, and it almost it's just it's turning into kind of the good, the bad, the white hat, the dark hat story, and yet you know some people are going to just continue to tell the same story that you know we went into Iraq to free people or whatever um to 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 rid people to because there was there was nuclear weapons but i guess too um so so how do you teach us to do that when you when you teach your students how do you go about getting them to deal with the whole history and to kind of just get okay with maybe the bitter along with the sweet Sure. Well, I think the first step is recognizing that, just like I was saying a minute ago, recognizing that people aren't perfect, right? People aren't perfect today. People weren't perfect 100 years ago. People weren't perfect 1,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you add 
you know, one of the first things you need to do is you need to look for the historical context of what's going on, right? Why are these people saying the things that they're saying? Um, and then kind of piece it all together like that. So you're not just condemning them, right? So right. it's not fair to someone in 1860 to judge them with 2015 values, right? Yeah. Um, what is fair is to put it in context and say, okay, in 2015, we should not be using the same arguments they were using. Right. Right. That's kind of how you... I, I think that's kind of how you negotiate the two, right? Because people people always think they're right. Okay, yeah. no one, you know, the old the old adage, you know, no one's the villain of their own story, right? Right. And so, and so, it's not it's not enough to just say, oh well, the South was evil in the Civil War. No, well, the yeah. South didn't think they were evil in the Civil War. The South thought they were doing the correct I, thing. Right. Right. So putting that in context and then saying, okay, what do we learn from this? How can we move forward so that we're not making the same mistakes that we think they made? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so true. I mean, Vietnam, Mm -hmm. the the Iraq war with the weapons. I mean, this this narrative is going to keep playing out. And if we keep romanticizing it, turning it into stories, it's not. And then just continually aggressively fighting our side of it instead of actually going to history, getting the context thinking what was their thought pattern then, where are we today, and what's really – where do we really want to go? I mean, man, it's – it's it really is. It's, it, it's an issue of all ages, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, it's sort of being exasperated at the moment through um, the uh, deconstruction of media mm-hmm. so that I can have my echo chamber over here and you can have your echo chamber over there and we could be talking about the same thing and never – uh, never cross paths, oh. and um, that's another way this sort of gets reinforced. You know, if I only hang out with, or if I only speak to people who think that I'm right, I'm never going to learn anything, and I'm never going to have to confront anything. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I think this all goes back to being afraid of history, um, which is one thing that I've sort of noticed over the past what three weeks, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, people seem to be afraid of the past, and I don't understand it. I mean, I understand why they're doing it. I don't understand it at an academic level. Um, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that people aren't perfect. Yeah. What's wrong is not accepting that people aren't perfect. Um, and so to move forward, you need to accept and you need to learn. And that's unfortunately not what I've been seeing from um, a, a lot of corners. However, um, for all of the hate mail I've received, <laughs> I bet it's been an over it's been an overwhelming number of support. Has which it is, makes me um, hopeful? Yeah, I mean, I, I, but the thing is, I think you're you're having the discussion. So I think the more we have this type of discussion, it, we're slowly going to start getting more people to just at least see the whole picture and let let it fall where it is, and it can still be. You can still love your country, and you can still love the right. South, and you can still love the North. I mean, it's it really right. is, and and it's um. So I'm 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 glad I'm glad that you wrote the article because it's it's not you di- you didn't make it academic and just all heady. You made it real and approachable, which is I, another thing I think we need. A lot of times we get academic and then we don't get it, or we get just to you know, like you said, that we just fall into the you know the I don't know. We just like to listen to our own. Views And we just like everybody to keep telling us the same stories, even though they're not working anymore. Well, we appreciate you, John. Uh, Great work again. And 
again, uh, go find the article on Huffington Post. It really is worth a read. Uh, you're a racist. Yes, you're a racist and a traitor. Um, let's let's not be revisionists about any of this. Let's try to just get the information out there, folks. We can take it. We're big people, and we're still the United States. We're still... We are the South. We are the North. We're the West. We got it all. We're even Hawaii. Come on, and Alaska. Let's not, let's not forget those guys. The Midwest. Good stuff. Uh, thanks for joining us, folks. We'll take a break. Come back. Uh, awesome, awesome movie review coming up with Rod Gustafson up next on Minions. He's from ParentPreviews.com. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, joining us right now is our movie critic, Rod Gustafson, from ParentPreviews.com, where they uh, they go out, watch the movies for you, so that you, and then do a review, so that you can see, you know, how, uh, if this is a good choice for your family, you can now be informed and make your decisions. Rod, welcome to the show, my friend. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Hey, I am so excited. This uh, I w- this is one of those moments, Rod, where I was in a movie theater watching Inside Out based on your recommendation with my whole family, and I watched a preview of Minions, and I've been di- I, to me it was funny again. It's, it was the trailer, right? And uh, right, it was where the the noose and the minion was there. <laughs> Trying to kill the minion, but the news there's no chin on a minion, so there's no way to stop anyway. Uh, anyway, and he slips right through the news, and I thought that's hilarious. Okay, so I want to watch this movie, but give us your view on it. You've reviewed it. What's your take on the the movie Minions? Well, you know, I, as a reviewer, I, I I openly admit I go into each movie with different expectations. And sometimes you go in with low expectations and you come out thinking, wow, that was so much better. And I thought, <laughs> I really enjoy the Despicable Me franchise. The first one was good. I thought the last one was superb. And so I went into this really with high anticipation because, of course, these are the little yellow creatures <laughs> that were born as yeah. part of Despicable Me with the bad villain grew and all that business how this movie tells the backstories uh the backstory of the minions where they came from and so i thought well this is going this is really going to be good and i agreed with you i thought the trailer worked well as well i this is probably my one of my biggest disappointment movies so far this year is it yeah i i came out of this feeling like I mean, first of all, let's just quickly, briefly look at it from an artistic perspective. Our protagonist is one of the minions. His name is Kevin, but he, (laughs) I mean, first of all, they can't speak a language that we can understand. And that's funny in little, you know, 30-second bursts. But for, you know, an hour and a half, it's really (laughs) stretching it. And you have a protagonist that you, you don't really care about him. And I've said this over and over as a film critic, I think one of the, one of the toughest things to sell in a movie is a protagonist that we don't have any empathy for. Oh, yeah. We don't care what happens to the protagonist. We don't care about the movie. And it doesn't matter if it's a simple little kid's film or a sophisticated adult drama. It always seems to be that way. And I, I really could care less what happened to Kevin. He's disposable. There's another 200 of them. Oh, man. And, um, and you know, that's how I came out of the movie feeling. The other thing, though, that will be an even greater concern, I think, for a lot of parents, 
is that there is a lot more violence in this film than I was expecting. I mean, the minions are always punching and hitting each yeah. other and doing all that type of stuff. So we still got all that. Well, in there's there. a noose in but, it. They were hanging a minion. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that scene that you saw from that trailer, they're in the Tower of London, uh, down in the torture chamber room. I don't know if you've ever been there, Matt, but they've they've got a room. I have, yeah. And, and, you know, okay, so personally, maybe this is just me, but when I went there as a tourist, I thought, you know, I, this, there's a dark. This is dark, yeah. It is. And maybe that is still what's hanging over and making jokes about, you know, where people actually were tortured to death and now the minions are in there hopping around. But, the other thing that happens in this film is there are a lot of threats and jokes and whatnot. They're actually putting people's lives at risk or people oh. are getting killed. Um, there's a scene where the minions wind up getting a ride with a family. They look like the typical family in the station wagon. And then they pull over and the mom and dad and the two kids go and rob a bank. And they come back out, hop in the car. The police are chasing them. They start shooting the police. Oh, now, boy. The guns turn out to be... It turn out to be uh, paintball guns, but still they shoot the police. The police get in a big car accident, running into each other and, and all of this. And I thought, you know, this is, is for me, crossed the line from, you know, kind of funny, hee-hee, ho-ho violence to moving into a type of violence. I thought, this is really becoming mean-spirited. Um, Sandra Bullock plays the antagonist. She plays this. Uh, because the minions are looking for a new evil boss, and she plays the evil boss that they wind up lining up with, too. And same thing there as well, yeah. Matt. So, yeah, did, disappointing in those regards. What grade did you give it, Rod? C-plus overall. Okay. So this one's falling below. We're surprised. Yeah. Rated PG look like, looks like fun, but parents approach oh. with caution. Rod, you're killing me. Well, I, I appreciate know, me too, <laughs> I know. You wanted it, too, because it really it, it's. It has that cute appeal, and you're thinking, oh, my kids can handle this. This will be good. But, I mean, it's that's what I love about your stuff. And, again, everybody, go go check out the website, parentpreviews.com, because let let Rod do the review. You, re, you review it. See how it feels for you and your family, and then get there, and, and, and if it works for you, take your family. Rod, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there. We'll have you back next week for more uh, reviews. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Be back with a whole other hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, the place where we give you the tools, the insight, the ideas, the backstories, everything you need to be able to... uh, Grow a healthy, happy family. How else can you do it? It's not an easy thing, right? It's tough. There's so much going on. So much, you know, intruding in our lives. So we will be uh, doing that very task today. What is the best way to learn? Have, have you figured that out yet? Should those kids turn off those televisions? I grew up convinced that if I watch TV, my brain was going to go soft. I was convinced of it. My mom would tell me that. And uh, if I, if I you know, sat too close to the screen, I would go blind. And if I didn't wear socks, I would catch a cold. <laughs> now, we've proven other th- theories, germ theories, viruses. Okay, the sock thing, maybe out there. 
But you know you gotta you gotta turn off the music. You've got to sit up, focus, have a snack right before you right before you study. No distractions. Those are the keys. Now, what if I told you that everything we have been talking about when it comes to learning, it's all off. It's all wrong. Then if that's the case, then my kids are learning a lot because they do everything the opposite of the way I think they should do it. I have kids that go to church, and the minute they're in church, we're sitting there, and they pull out their phones in the middle of some of the most important meetings where they should be listening, and they say, I need my phone to concentrate. And I'm like, well, that's actually a really good point. You might. So then turn the game off. I take notes. Wherever I go, I take notes. And notes help me focus. But it almost looks like I don't care and I'm distracted and I'm not paying attention. Anyway, today we're going to get into the power of thought and where all of this, uh, you know, where do you really learn? How does the process of learning take place? Is it is it? Does your environment matter? Does the context of how you're learning matter? Does how much time you spend doing something, does any of that matter? We'll be giving you some of the latest and greatest research from award-winning science reporter Benedict Carey. He will be joining us as well. But before we do that, let's go to the oh-so-learned Kathy Aiken for the headlines. Good morning, Matt. After 54 years, the Confederate flag has been removed from the South Carolina Capitol. Governor Nikki Haley called the move historic after signing a bill into law yesterday removing the flag. The state Senate and House debated the bill earlier this week after a gunman killed nine black people in a Charleston church last month. The recent hack of government computers is much larger than originally thought. The Social Security numbers of nearly 21 million Americans are now in the hands of hackers. Cybersecurity expert James Lewis talked about the breach. They'll have a a long time to work on figuring out how to use it for recruitment, how to use it to maybe coerce people with relatives in China. Um, they'll find a million ways to use this, and none of them will be good for the U.S. Officials are calling Catherine Archuleta to resign. She's the head of the Federal Office of Personnel Management. Archuleta said she will not. Government officials say there is no evidence any of the stolen information has yet been used for identity theft. According to a newly released poll, Donald Trump leads the GOP presidential field at 15 percent. That's four points over former Florida Governor Jeb Bush and Senator Rand Paul, who tied for second. Trump has been front and center with much of the media recently after his controversial remarks on immigration. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, Senator Marco Rubio, and former Governor Mike Huckabee shared the third spot at 9% each. Black civil rights activists are seeking to have Bill Cosby's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame removed. The leader said it would be the walk of shame if the star remains. This coming after a deposition from Cosby back in 2005 was released this week, revealing he obtained sedatives to give women he wanted to have sex with. The Hollywood Chamber Commerce said it has no plans to remove the star since one has never been removed before. For the first time ever, an all-female team will be honored with a ticker tape parade in New York City today. The U.S. women's soccer team will travel down what's called the Canyon of Heroes after their World Cup win over Japan on Sunday. The cost of the parade estimated at $2 million. And Matt, the man who starred in Dr. Zhivago has Mm -hmm. died. Omar Sharif, the Egyptian-born actor and first Arab actor to achieve worldwide fame, died today after suffering a heart attack. Hmm. He also starred in Lawrence of Arabia and Funny Girl. He was 83. Omar Sharif. Omar Sharif. Yeah, that was my mom's favorite show. 
Was it really? Dr. Zhivago. Dr. Yeah. Zhivago. Yeah. Kind of long. Yeah. But yeah. it was it was very good. I had to take that in a film study class. And you thought? Hated it. <laughs> I, Why did you hate I it? I wasn't mature enough. Yeah, there you go. You know I what? I think the older we get, the more There we just like wasn't it. a lot of like, I don't know. Just depressing. Violence. Yeah. Oh, shoot me ups. <laughs> you like the more uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah. Yeah, man. You know, um, uh, I was disappointed in our last hour when I found out that Minions, it's, it's not as great as I thought it would be. Because I was excited to go to see Minions. Is oh. that is so? That, now, does that mean you're not going to go? Does that did that discourage you? I, I don't know. I don't know because I, I it doesn't matter what I want. It pretty much just matters what my children want. Very true. Because if I'm like, well, let me tell you what the critics were saying. <laughs> they just look <laughs> they, at me like, like, I don't care. We'll be in the car, Dad. <laughs> yeah, we'll just be <laughs> waiting in the car. Uh, can we have the keys? Because we'll just we want to listen to the radio. Yeah, we're going. And can, oh, can we have your wallet? Yeah, so yeah. it doesn't matter. I don't know. I don't think uh, I don't think critics affect me too much. Don't they? Uh, uh-uh. I usually rely on maybe friends or family that have seen the movie. Yeah. If they say don't go, then I usually don't. But yeah. Critics, I yeah, not much. Uh, do you rely on your kids to just tell you what movie? Because my kids apparently see every movie, mm-hmm. and I'm like, do you have money for this? Where do you? How do you get the money to go to these movies? They found it in your secret hiding. They just place. say we have our ways, but because they've been to everything, <laughs> they can tell me. They become my critic. Yep. Isn't exactly. That crazy. Yep. Yeah, huh, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I'm probably going to watch the great uh, the great soccer team go down in New York Canyon and have the. Heroes. That's pretty cool. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's mean, about time. It's historic. I mean, yeah. the first. Come on, first team. A couple of other women have gone down, um, but this is the first team, like group of women that have ever been honored. That's huge. Yeah, that'd be great to see. They deserve they it. Deserve it. Come for on. Sure. Well done, Kathy. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know how Minions goes. Even you know. I'm going, I'm sure. Sure. Hey, by the way, uh, today is Don't Step on a Bee Day. Bee Awareness Day. Don't step on any bees, you guys. Got that, Ben? Ben always steps on bees. He comes in with bees just stuck to his flip-flops. Yeah, I stepped on one coming to work today. Yeah. So. Don't do that. That the, the name of July 10th, the holiday today, the, the day we celebrate is Bee Awareness Day. And Ben already violated it. Rude. Uh, we'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we've got a great, great topic coming up. Ben Carey's going to be joining us, uh, New York Times writer, but uh, also the author of the book How We Learn the Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens. Fascinating stuff, folks, that might actually change how you teach your children to learn and maybe how you even focus on, on your own approach to learning. Stick with us. We'll be talking about learning up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we are... uh, Working on our next guest, Ben Carey, joining us on his book. But uh, while we're waiting, I wanted to talk to you about this um, the movie Inside Out. Have you seen it yet? It's a Pixar movie, and we go deep inside the brain of um, a, a little girl named Riley, who for some reason reminds me of Ben, Ben Wasden, the board op. And he 
Ben's great too. But this this little girl. So in the movie Inside Out, we get to see that this Riley has five basic emotions that are running her head, right? And it's it's to me, it really is. I think a powerful, uh, a very powerful movie for a variety of reasons because it's now it's not Pixar just trying to, you know entertain per se it's it's they're actually educating and it, it's kind of a cool movement because boy you can go be educated and informed and entertained all simultaneously what's better than that so i've been putting together some of my ideas on the movie and one of the things that you got to know is everybody and this is a big part of the movie if you've seen it uh there's five basic emotions that that Pixar points out, and it seems like every human in the movie has these five emotions, and those emotions are joy, sadness, uh, fear, disgust, and anger. Okay? Joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger. And joy really seems to have the head and the heart of this girl. And so joy is inside the brain, pulling the levers, making things happen, responding to everything that's going on in the world. And it was such a fascinating thing because as somebody that works with people in their relationships, I, to me, loved the idea that we started to distinguish the fact that people have emotions and those emotions are actually maybe different than the actual person. See, we always kind of like just say, oh, yeah, she's just rude or he's just, you know, angry. And when we say it and we state it like that, it's almost like the person is anger. But the person isn't anger. Anger is one of the five emotions that we all share. So one of the great lessons of that of the movie Inside Out is the emotions are different than Riley. And each emotion is battling for Riley's uh, security and her safety. And it's such a powerful lesson because emotions are there for a purpose. I have all the time in my office people that just shake their head. They tend to be men. They're not always men, but they tend to be men that shake their head. And they're like, oh, all this emotion, all this drama. And I'm like, yeah, what's the emotion telling you? It's telling you that somebody is hurting. It's telling you that there's pain there. So here are some points I'm going to give you my version of the lessons from the movie Inside Out, okay? Basic, basic idea, but my view of the lessons from the movie Inside Out, because uh, if you haven't seen it, you, you really ought to. It'll help you understand people a lot better. I, I truly believe that. As, again, and I'm not here to just pitch a movie, but the lessons are amazing. For example, first lesson, we need to learn the power of recognizing an emotion, there is incredible benefit to being able to see that somebody's angry or sad or happy or, uh, you know, frustrated. It, there's power there. So one of the things I, I would suggest is take your family to the movie and then start teaching these basic ideas. Like, man, you seem angry. When someone's angry, if we could just recognize their anger, a lot of us don't want to recognize it. We just get we get afraid, and we're like, oh, she's feeling that emotion. I better leave. And you could even see that in the movie. You could see the husband 
wasn't necessarily understanding the daughter's, or the father wasn't understanding the daughter's emotion. The wife was frustrated because her husband wasn't paying attention to the daughter. She needs some attention now. And the, the dad was kind of in his head thinking, and it created this really interesting tension that went between the family. We all have emotions, and those emotions are there for a reason. So as part of as part of our uh, coach's corner, do you see the emotion in your partner? Do you recognize it? Do you get what emotion they're having? And when you see it, can I just suggest you recognize it? You you overtly recognize it. Say, honey, you seem angry, because behind the emotion, there's a story to tell. And if we can let the story out, you might have some hope of going somewhere, right? This might go somewhere instead of just being an emotional knockdown drag out. There are emotions. Everybody has them, and the emotions are there to serve you. You've evolved to have these emotions so that you are not hurt, so that so that you're protected. That's why you have fear. That's why you have anger to protect you, uh, to have sadness to protect you, so that you don't maybe sometimes risk too far. You also have joy to see the benefits of life. There are many benefits in life, and the emotions are what drive you toward the benefit, and also the emotions are what drive you away from dangers. They're good things. When they come up in our relationships, we need to be just like uh, you can see in the movie. You, you need to go in and try to understand the emotion and why is that emotion driving the person. There's a reason why fear takes over in that great movie uh, Inside Out. Fear would take over, but universally when fear takes over or anger takes over, things don't go well. Fear makes it so nothing gets done, and anger makes it so everything goes chaotic and crazy. It's interesting. They have a purpose, and one of the great lessons of the movie Inside Out is simply follow the emotion. Recognize it. Don't run from it. Don't react to it. Don't fight with the emotion. Just recognize it. And that's going on in every human being. And that is a major part of that movie, um, Inside Out, because it's teaching you that emotions are universal. They're not to be feared. They're not to be attacked. They're not to be despised. They're not to be disgusting you. They're just there to be understood. So rule number one, lesson from Inside Out, notice the power of recognizing emotions of others. It's telling us something. Second rule, everyone has a different emotional makeup. And we'll get into this more after the break, but everybody brings a different makeup. So don't ever assume that, uh, you know, men always have one makeup or women always have another makeup. Every human being is going to bring a different mix. And one of the things I was thinking through the entire movie is, what's my makeup? Do I tend to run more dominantly by anger or fear or disgust? How do I run my life? And it's good to know. So when you go watch the movie, you can sit down, have a great discussion after with your family and just say, you know what? Okay, I tend to relate a lot more to joy or I tend to relate a lot more to sadness. And you might have a nice little mix. And by the way, don't just don't just say what you relate to. Ask your family which ones they think you were like. That's an interesting discussion as well. And don't be mad because they say you were anger. Oh, there we go. Anger. Because if you're mad, you're just proving the point, right? And don't be sad if they say that you were sad because you're just proving the point. And don't be afraid to have the conversation because you're proving the point. Make sense? Every emotion you have about talking about your emotions is telling you something about you. 
And we've got to figure out what our makeup is emotionally. Do we tend to, you know, do we tend to understand our emotions very well? There's a whole science behind the book or the the movie Inside Out by Pixar. The science is basically emotional intelligence. We have to learn to recognize our own emotions. We have to learn to share our emotions. We have to care, right? We have to understand that my emotions matter and I need to do something about it. And emotionally intelligent people have the ability to manage their emotion. They have the ability to recognize their emotion. They also have the ability to notice the emotions in others, the feelings. They can see them. And they don't just react to them. An emotionally intelligent person has the ability to not react just because you're reacting. So we're going to take a break and come back, continue this discussion, a little coach's corner for you uh, on the topic of my lessons from the movie Inside Out. Fascinating, uh, fascinating thing. Again, this is a movie you wouldn't have seen years ago. And uh, it's pretty cool when the, the human sciences converge in a cartoon and educate your kids and your family to a higher level of being. Interesting stuff. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Doing a little coach's corner for you here. Um, my uh, insights from the Pixar movie Inside Out, which is really a great flick. I, I honestly, for my kids to have such a great discussion, it, it's a it's a really well done movie. It, interestingly, uh, Don just came in and had been reading a book, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, and one of the the points that he that Ed made in the book is this movie Inside Out almost wasn't made. Because for years it was they kept they wanted to do it, but they kept putting it on the back burner because they didn't quite know how to do it. How do you do a movie that basically is about, you know, emotional development in the brain and make it interesting for the kids, yet make it so adults can enjoy it as well? And so look at how much time it took. And ironically, um, you probably took a lot of creativity. Uh, which is why Ed Catmull's book was so valuable. The creativity um, has to be explained. We have to explain something as as difficult as the brain with the emotions and our memories and our core memories. All of that was part of this movie. And you have an experience, and some of our experiences become core memories, and those core memories are stored. And then they probably, if you think about it, nurture and facilitate why we tend to have more of a focus on joy or more of a focus on fear. Think of that. If one of your core memories was a horrendous experience that happened when you were a child, you may be more fearful. And fear may be your dominant emotion of the five emotions. Now, obviously, it's simplifying our physiology quite a bit, but it gives understanding. And the number one thing I love about the understanding is it makes it so we don't have to just be bugged by people that are emotional, and when I teach people to talk, the number one thing I teach them to do is you got to recognize the emotion because someone's emotion is communication. If they're angry, they're telling you something. 
And it doesn't mean they're right, and it doesn't mean everything they're saying and doing it makes sense. It's just telling you who's in charge, which of the five you know, emotions are in charge. And remember, everyone's makeup is different. Everyone's emotional makeup is different. So you got to remain curious as you're dealing with people. Most of us don't. We don't, we don't uh, sit there and just stay neutral. Most of us are either—we're we're kind of on the prey, we're kind of on the prowl trying to get what we want, or we're, we're kind of, you know, we just don't care. If you want to understand somebody's emotions, don't think you know what they mean. So you got to be curious to what they're saying. And when you see the anger, be curious to what it means. I can see you're angry. Why are you angry? And when somebody starts to talk about their anger, if it's addressed to you, notice what will happen. If they're bringing you anger, your anger is going to kick in because now you're going to have to protect yourself against their anger. So you're actually now just reacting to their emotion. There's a great scene in this Inside Out movie of the entire family eating dinner, mom, dad, daughter, and they get in a fight— Mom's mad at dad because he wasn't involved enough. Dad's fighting with daughter because she's pushing back. Her anger makes his anger go off. And a great image in the movie uh, Inside Out is where whenever anger is working the board, the board that controls the body, um, it's like a big, it's basically like our audio board. Anger always grabs the board and and all of the the keys and all of the sliders and everything on the board. He always grabs them with two hands and always overdoes it. And when he overdoes it, game on, and off they go. Everybody's got a different emotional makeup. So when you see the emotion, recognize it and be curious to it and go try to understand the other person. That's relating 101. Also remember this thing. Whatever emotion you have is going to make you feel right. Make sense? Joy is going to make you feel accurate that you should be happy. Because joy, the feeling of joy, makes you want to be happy. And in the movie, joy was always trying to push joy, even though there may have been times where sadness was a good thing to have. Fear needs to feel right. So when you're afraid, you always feel like you're accurately feeling afraid and you should be feeling afraid and you're justified to. Even when you're not afraid, even when you don't need to be afraid, you still might feel that. Sadness is going to make you feel blue even when times are good. Anger is going to actually make you be aggressive beyond the amount you need to be aggressive. Disgust is always going to have a judgment of every situation. That's how our emotions work because they're not there to just be your friend. They're there to make sure you don't die. And the only way to make sure you don't die is to make sure you believe what they're doing. So that's why our emotions come on so strong and they're so powerful. But be careful because some of sometimes, many times, your emotions are wrong. Many times your emotions, I mean, they feel accurate to you, but they're not telling the whole story. Another great lesson in the movie Inside Out is that changes are important. Our life, this young girl, Riley, had to move, I think it was from like Minneapolis or something to San Francisco, and... She didn't want the change. In the change, she lost her friends. She lost her family. It was a sad day. And that change ended up really tearing her apart. And that's why the whole movie was about her emotions went on this battle. A lot of her memories were rocked. A lot of her core beliefs were rocked. Her most important things in her life were starting to be broken down. 
But change, and I want all of us to be noticing this, change actually does stir the emotional pot. And stirring the pot is a, a good thing over time. Change could be the death of somebody. It could be, uh, you know, loss of a job. It could be, you know, the need to get a, a, go to school, get a degree. Anything that drives you away, it could be, you know, a, a marriage issue. It could be a child that's sick. It could be anything that creates change. And you'll notice it, un, it makes you a little unsteady at first, but the, the changes are actually good. So, and in the movie, they eventually play that out, which is a great discussion to go have with your kids. You might feel that you need to fear change, but you don't need to always fear change. You don't. You don't need to always be angry because somebody's angry at you. And then the last great lesson I learned from Inside Out is um, it just reinforced a very basic principle that I've believed in, I think, my entire life, that to know joy, you have to know sadness. To know, uh, you know something that's positive, you have to understand negative. To know light, you have to know dark. You have to know the opposite. And in the movie, Joy is constantly pushing for her agenda, kind of seen as the supreme hierarchy of emotion. The most important one is Joy because we're all seeking it. And yet without sadness, uh, the show wouldn't have worked. Sadness for each of us. And and then there's a really powerful thing. If you want to go on my Facebook page, we'll post it. I told you my son came home from his uh, LDS mission. And when my son—so that's a two years. Some of you don't know. That's two years where they just go away and they serve the church in another country. He went to Mexico. But when he left us two years ago to go on this mission, we can't—we can call him twice a year. Not a lot we can do with him. Just support him, and he just lives alone. He doesn't have social media. He doesn't get to do much except go teach people about God and Jesus and the church. And uh, when he left, man, it was like he died. It destroyed our family for about a month. There was this darkness over our house like Jake is dead. And, you know, it took a while to get over that. And I had kids that would cry about it regularly. Anyway, I didn't notice how impactful the joy would be because I was so caught up in the sadness for two years. But after two years, my son came home from a mission the other day, about a week ago. And my son, my other son made a video of it. And if you want to go to my Facebook page, just go find Matt Townsend. And you can watch the video of our family with my son coming home. Go watch it. And here's what I want you to look for. Watch the faces of my wife and my sons as they're hugging their brother, and you'll see joy. But the joy you see in their face comes from the fact that they, they were so deep and sad in the two years without their boy. You need the joy. We all want the joy. That's the goal. But you got to have the sadness, folks. They got to go together. Great lessons from Inside Out. Uh, Pixar, they did it again. I'm glad they were willing to, to push through it and figure it out. Great lessons for all of us. We'll take a break. When we come back, visit our friends down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? I've been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Boom! Little Cotton Eye Joe. I love this song. This, you can't listen to this song and not tap your toes. So let's go to the toe-tapping experts. 
our friends at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan. Hello, gentlemen. I can't think yeah. of a more common church dance song <laughs> for Mormon kids than the one you just played. Is for that us. a common song? I haven't been to a church dance forever. <laughs> Those are the words. Are, are there words? <laughs> Just like, where did you come from? Where if did you I go? was green, I would die. If you I know, uh, that is so funny because they don't Screams let old man night. like me into church dances anymore. That's just creepy. 50 feet away. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your distance, Brother Townsend. Hey, um, brother. Do you like that song or what? That just gets your toe a tapping. It it brings back some funny, fond memories from, like I said, church dance. (laughs) School dances. We called them stomps when I was Oh, yeah. We called them stomps. Yeah. All right. Oh, let's find out what Jerem called them. Did you ever call them? Yeah, stomps. You called them stomps? Apparently, that's like a Utah only thing. Oh, Oh, is it? it? It's like. The, the, yeah, regional diction. Like, what's a stomp? So I'll show uh, you a stomp. Slough versus yeah, skip ditch ditch. ditch. Yep. Yeah, slough classes. Yep. Yeah, we're just bringing out the Utahisms. How do you spell slough? Is slough. it S L O U G H? I guess if I guess if it's wow. falling off you, it's probably that way. Yeah. I always thought it was S L U F F, but then is. again, that's probably because I I wouldn't know because I was sloughing. If I had gone to class, I would have known that. Hey, I got some good news for you guys. Um, What's up? It okay. involves food. All right. Bring it on. It's a Friday. This is in Berlin, by the way. Um, a man is in hot water after allegedly stealing a bicycle, pitching it through a Berlin restaurant window, <laughs> then entering and drinking a half a bottle of Tabasco sauce. Oh, boy. Telling the authorities he was thirsty. Can okay, a boys... I want you to guess why. Why would he steal a bike, throw it through a window, jump in the the building, the restaurant, drink half of a thing of Tabasco sauce? Was it because, A, he was really thirsty, B, he likey the Tabasco, <laughs> or C, he was intoxicated? Um, I'm going to go with C... He was intoxicated. Jerem? Yes. What would you say? I'll say D, all of the above. There's no D. Dang it. The actual answer, B, he likey the Tabasco. Why would you not just What does it have to do with the Tabasco bicycle sauce? <laughs> you guys, I'm going to start giving you quizzes like that. No, mm. I graduated six years ago. That's a good quiz. Don't you? I made that up right there on the spot. Hey, I've got good. a story for you, Matt. What? It happened to me like five minutes ago. Was it? A, does it involve a bottle of Tabasco? Close. No. Okay. No, but it, it kind of made me think about a scene from the classic movie The Godfather. Ooh. Does it okay. involve a horse? <laughs> Close. <laughs> Close. Okay, okay. Go. It involves some taxidermy. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> so <laughs> Studio C is filming uh-huh. over the next couple of so days. So there's props everywhere. Yeah. Props everywhere. I go into what is affectionately called as makeup too mm-hmm. in BYU broadcast. But you're not going for makeup. You're just going. Oh, I'm going to touch for... up because I got to be on TV. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have to go. Yeah, apply well, some you had of a breakout. You had a little acne breakout. You're good. <laughs> oh my god. You can hardly a little tell. eczema. <laughs> Mostly, I just don't want to shine. But That's regardless, right. That's good. That's okay? good. Walk in, just kind of you know daily thing, and there's two huge deer heads <laughs> with antlers in the cha- in the makeup chairs in the room, sitting next to you. Like, I about poked my eye out with one of the antlers. <laughs> you, I, oh, that I, would have been. I legitimately was frightened. That would have been great TV. 
And then someone said to me, hey, Spencer wants to talk to you and make up too. And I said, that's weird. We, what? <laughs> he wants to talk to me right now? Like, we'll see each other in like two seconds. So that, I go in as well, and I'm like, whoa. What the? <laughs> Where did those deer come from? Ha! They're huge deer heads. <laughs> my eye. Like, my eye. They're like eight point antlers, okay? <laughs> eight point bucks. Eight okay. Do you want to hear the crate? So I'm driving to my radio show in Salt Lake back in the day. Driving, speeding to get there, and I'm going down the freeway, and I can feel somebody's looking at you. Have you ever had that feeling? Like somebody's looking at you. Yes. And I look over, and there is a deer head staring right at me in the back seat <laughs> of some guy's like Civic. Super creepy. Oh, and, and I'm like, what? The? I, like it startled me. And I'm thinking, have you ever seen, um, no, what's the movie where the deer wakes up in the back seat? Tommy Boy? Yeah, yes. I'm having a Tommy Boy moment. Like <laughs> this guy's about to die. He has no idea he's got a live deer in the back seat. Ketchup popsicle freaked me out. Super creepy. Well, that's a great story though, guys. I mean, I'm glad you made it, Spence. That could have been dangerous. I know. I know. It was almost enough to make us not do the show today. Woo! That's weird. I know. Right? Are you? But you're still doing it. We're still going to do the show. Wow. I always We're wonder. Push on. Yeah. What? What? You guys have a topic today, or are you just going to wing it? Um. Well, you know us. <laughs> Today's show is a little different because uh, President Packer's funeral is today. Yes. 11. Yes. So the TV side will be preempted um, by coverage uh, of the procession. So what do you do? 20 or 30 yeah. minutes before. Okay. Um, but radio will be a full broadcast of BYU Sports Nation today. Cool. But do you, do you plan differently? Um, a little no. bit. Not really. Okay. One Just of you be, does. Well, okay. We, I mean, we, we have to plan the logistics around tossing to TV and going to break and Bring back with radio, but the content's going to be the same. Yeah, for we radio. still have a full show, well, and the content's still going to be awesome and engaging, of course, and opinionated. Yeah, and Duh. there'll be some friendly arguing and banter. But and people should know when they see you on TV and there's a scratch on your cheek, that's from a deer antler, <laughs> not, not or, from Jerem's fingernail. <laughs> my two-year-old, or your two-year-old. Hey, um, or here's, here's what topic subject matter, Matt? Okay. We're, we are looking at the current state of Nebraska football because I said something yesterday that Jeremy was like, what? You're crazy. I said their their program is in a bit of disarray. Hmm. And he said, disarray? They won nine games last year. And so we're, we're looking at why I – and I picked Nebraska as BYU's most likely win of the first four tough games in September. Yeah, Some people kind of look at them like, you're crazy, dude. They haven't yes. lost a home opener in Lincoln in 30 years. Well, Ugh. I've got like four or five reasons that make me feel very confident about BYU's chances. Good. And uh, Jerem, of course, is I have here, to, here to try and bring me back down to earth. You guys, I love it how you fight and then make <laughs> up after. Who says we make yeah, up? Yeah, exactly. Who says we're making up? <laughs> it just seems like it. It seems like So you'll be talking about Nebraska and its position, and is it really all that? You'll be defending your two positions. Yes, and, and you need to answer our Twitter question. What yeah. percent chance do you give BYU to win at Nebraska in the season opener, and why? Well, I'm going with 75% chance. Wow. You want to know what's crazy? What? You're not that much higher than the core of Nebraska's SB Nation fan base. Really? They are picking BYU to win the game. I think BYU will win this one. All right. There you go. 75%. Wow. Okay. 75%. Wow. That's real high. That is uh-huh. high. Yeah. That's high. You know. We'll you tell know. you ours. Hey, I did play Little League football. Don't get me wrong. Holler. So, so that makes you an expert on picking BYU yes, at Nebraska? Yes, and not to brag, but I was also sportsman. I won the sportsmanship award. 
because I was the one that would willingly sit out and let other people play. Tell me that's not manly. That is manly. Congratulations. Because I'm a giver. Hey, boys. Okay. Great show. Good luck. Thank we'll, you, sir. We'll be watching for you. I wish you no more creepy deer moments. Oh, thank you. You're Ditto. Welcome. Hasta la vista. Good stuff. Keep listening to Cotton Eye Joe, by the way. Hey, um, great uh, great uh, show. We've got an audio cut for my hero of the day. Okay, we always like to end with a hero. This is my hero, My also my nomination for President of the United States, South Carolina Governor, uh, Nikki Haley. It's time to move the flag from the Capitol grounds. This is a moment in which we could say that that flag, while an integral part of our past, does not represent the future of our great state. Okay. Game on, right? And she gave the most impassioned plea um, in, uh, actually, in the pre-signing of this thing. She talked about the fact that we're a state where we had nine people brutally murdered but those nine people had let in this one person to study their church beliefs with them. And she made this incredible point that um, because of their goodness, and then the, the, the man shot nine of these people, killed nine people, then the families of the nine people forgave this man. Goodness again. Goodness again. Um, and then uh, out of all of this— People then heard and they saw the goodness and they saw the grace, she said, that comes from when people live their values and are good, honest, healthy people, it will eventually conquer over the evil. And because of that goodness, they were able to pass legislation in a major, major majority to get this Confederate flag down off of the state capitol and did something they weren't able to do for years and turned goodness— uh, turned actually something horrible, some tragedy into goodness. And I just have been so impressed with Nikki Haley's leadership, and no one should politicize this. The power, though, is she's able to cry at the at the at the um, press conference when she's saying how hard this has been on a day she thought she'd never see peace again. And then she actually was able to rally and to see and to point out the goodness of her own people and together turn it into some action, which I think is incredible. We need more politicians that can take the pain of real life and turn it into goodness. And we need more citizens like we've seen from South Carolina. So hero of the day is Nikki uh, Haley, governor of South Carolina and the people of South Carolina. Well done, folks. Hero, hero, heroes. So proud of you. That's the show, my friend. Weekend is yours. Go make it a good one. Remember, keep your kids close, love them, take care of each other. You're blessed to be where you are and to know what you have. Until Monday, take care of yourself and make it a great one.